Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Connor Clark from Traders Rendezvous in Gunnison, Colorado. Connor, how you doing? Doing good, Jay. How are you doing? Good. I'm anxious to have you on the podcast. You know, I've got a little story about uh, uh, your shop there, Traders Rendezvous, uh, there in, in Gunnison. Um, years ago, we used to hunt a bunch with my friend Steve Winery. Uh, they're kind of between Gunnison and Lake City. And uh, I've actually believe I've been in there multiple times and uh, unbelievable antler display and collection there. And, and uh, what you were telling me earlier is I, I need to get in there because it sounds like you guys got even more stuff than you did 10 or 12 years ago. Oh, yeah. Keep buying. <laughs> Keep buying. <laughs> so Buy tell me all. a little bit about Trader's Rendezvous and um, your dad opening it up and talk to me a little bit about the business and then we're going to dive into Colorado elk deer goat and sheep sweet um so my dad um his family moved here when he was about eight years old um, moved to Gunnison Colorado um my grandpa started a bunch of businesses on a bunch of businesses in town including um outfitting companies rafting companies um car lots um and this where Trader's Rendezvous currently is was a pawn shop. Um, so it was kind of filled with the crap you'd find in a pawn shop, um, bikes, TVs, you know, the whole lot. Um, and my dad, when he was about 23 years old, said, hey, I want to buy this. So he started um, making payments, buying it from my grandpa. Um, and it's funny, we were looking at the pictures the other day, and it actually, the first pictures of the store, there's a bike rack with about 12 bikes on it. One elk head and a pile of antlers, um, so it started at that, and now we've got um, mounts and antlers from all over the world. Um, he's been doing it for 31 years now, so we've been in the same place for 31 years, um, and he's just acquired quite the collection over the years, um, and like I said, just keeps buying. That's awesome, and you know, probably the the price of antler, you know, it fluctuates, but it's a, it's a heck of a business, especially if you guys have been in it a long time. You guys have a reputation and a name that you've built up. Do you guys go around and buy a bunch of antler, or do people mostly bring them to you and you buy them at the store? We do a lot of both. Um, the people that know we're here, they're the ones that are bringing the pickup loads full from all across the state. Um, they come into the store, and if we've got a new client that says, hey, you know, I've never sold antlers, i got a shed full or i got a pickup load full, then we'll make the trip down, um, bring the scale, and go out there and buy. And, yeah, like you said, it is a lucrative business for sure. I mean, it's, it's crazy to see just the changes in the last, you know, four or five years um, in antler prices and just the market, how many people are getting into it. Um, and my dad got into it, like I said, 30 years ago, so he got into it at the right time to really acquire a collection that anybody starting nowadays um, would never be able to get that sort of collection. Um, and he kind of got his name out there. So we do have a reputation in the business, which helps. Um, but, yeah, a lot of, a lot of antler buyers, um, fly-by-night operations, you know, opening up across the state. Um, so it's just trying to stay competitive with them and maintain a good reputation. Yeah, I mean, because it's like anything else. Um, if, if you get the reputation for ripping people off, I mean, the word travels yeah. fast. How, as a business owner and, and working with your dad, like, how, how do you guys, I mean, do you have to let some deals walk out the door just because it's one of those things that, uh, you know, you, you still have to run it as a business? 
Yep, absolutely. I mean, and there's there's people that um, we were talking about earlier, the Jackson Hole Antler Sale. So they go up to the Jackson Hole Antler Sale, and for you listeners that don't know what that is, um, it's Elk Fest, happens every year in May. Um, we've been going there for 30 years, and the Boy Scouts pick up all the elk sheds off the National Elk Refuge, and they do an auction there. So these people will go to the auction, um, and they'll see, uh, you know, a little brown five-point elk antler go for $35 a pound um, because someone wants to buy it, you know, from the refuge. And then they come um, come in with these unreal expectations of what kind of, you know, prices they should get for them. Um, but a lot of people actually, more so than that, are very surprised. You know, they got a they got a little pile of antlers, you know, three feet wide, and they bring it in and total it up for them and give it to them, and they're like, whoa, I didn't even know. I yeah. had that, I've had that in my shed for four years, and I didn't even know that I could have made money on that. So that happens yeah, I, more often than the other side. I'll bet you uh, half the wives, uh, uh, if, if, if the people, I have a lot of women that listen to the podcast, but if, if I would say all of the men put together, if they would just have their wives listen, their wives listen to this podcast, they'd be like, "Don't you have some antlers we can sell? Because I need a new purse." And they'd uh, yep, be down there, exactly. Uh, That's down what my there trading with trying you. to do to me. She's like, "Hey, you got too many antlers." So then I end up putting them in the shed or something. I'm like, "Man, I even though we're antler buyers, it's hard for me to get rid of my own sheds." You know? <laughs> hey, it's. It's kind of like fly rods, you know, or, or uh, guns. You can never have enough of them. Yep, exactly. That's what I always <laughs> say about guns and antlers. Never have enough. That's right. Well, um, for the listeners out there, um, Connor's uh, Instagram page is Colorado Antlers. Uh, his website is coloradoantlers.com. Uh, you can also follow his personal page at Connor D. Clark. Um, Connor, uh, what I wanted to talk to you about is the – uh, deadline for Colorado for the big game draw is coming up April 3rd, mm-hmm. and we've had some great guests already on talking about Colorado. Um, but, but I thought it would be great to have someone like yourself, a local that's um, you know not necessarily an outfitter, but has been there you know your whole life. You you know generations of hunting family there, uh, and know the areas, know the units well, know the state well and can kind of give an unbiased opinion on some of the units and, um, you know, maybe some trends, what you're seeing uh, and what have you. Uh, the first question I would ask you is, uh, you know, you're right there in Gunnison. You're in the Gunnison Basin, born and raised. Um, for the listeners out there that don't know, kind of what are, when, when, when you hear the word Gunnison Basin and the units that are around Gunnison Basin, what are those units? Um, so the units we've got surrounding Unit 54, um, Unit 66, Unit 67, Unit 551, and Unit 55. And you had uh, Louis Foles on talking about Unit 55, um, so I won't dive into that one too much, but those are the immediate Gunnison Basin units that I think of. And I know, like, on mid-February, they kind of had a Gunnison Basin uh, meeting, a Game and Fish meeting and what have you. Um, what went on? I assume you probably went to that meeting. If not, you probably heard all about it. Um, you know, what went down at that meeting? What was discussed? And, you know, kind of what's, what's going on in the Gunnison Basin? So a lot of um, controversy has been around uh, a trail system called the Signal Peak Trail System. 
Um, so the Gunnison Trails Committee in Gunnison um, is a mountain biking association, association um, and they are trying to set up a trail system on the Signal Peak um, area, which is about, I mean, it's just east of Gunnison, um, north of Highway 50, um, and they've got miles and miles of roads and existing trails back there. Um, the roads can connect you all the way to the Taylor Canyon, up to the Taylor Reservoir, um, over Cottonwood Pass. You know, there's a there's a bunch of roads back there, bunch of trails, um, but they are fighting to put in 26 miles of new trail, um, and that is in prime wintering ground. I mean, that's Signal Peak is about two miles as the crow flies from my parents' property where I grew up, um, and obviously watched deer winter there my entire life. Um, so. The Gunnison Wildlife Association, which I'm part of, um, has been, you know, trying to fight the Signal Peak Trail system, um, and it seems like we kind of found some middle ground. Um, they're going to put less established trails, um, and they're going to close it down all the way until May 1, until that shed season opens up. Um, so it's, you know, not quite exactly what we wanted, um, but it's definitely a middle ground that we can meet on for that. Um, so that's that's something pretty big that's been happening in the Gunnison Basin, um, other than that, you know, it's just kind of trying to figure out um, the gap between the Division of Wildlife and the sportsmen, trying to get everybody on the same page. Um, we had a pretty hard winter last year, um, as I'm sure you're aware, um, as well as, like, the Vail Eagle Basin up there. Um, and we just got absolutely hammered with snow. Um, so our deer population seemed like it took a hit at the time. Um, now, when I went out in May looking for sheds, I didn't find as many deadheads as I thought. Um, but we were able to fight to reduce the deer tags last year, um, deer and elk tags, and I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen with that this year, um, but I think it may raise a little bit from the amount they gave out, um, but still a pretty pretty good amount of tags. Uh, so I, I was able to hunt quite a bit with uh, Steve Winery there in, uh, you know, south of you towards Lake City and mm -hmm. um then we had that winter kill of 2007, and, and, you know, it seemed like that, you know, 03, 04, 05, 06, right in there, especially I think 04, 05, 06, you know, just tons and tons of deer, and then they had that winter kill, and um, I think I was able to shoot a good buck in 09, you know, I think it was a fairly old mature deer, it was really the only one I saw, um, went a little bit over 190 inches, but Man, that the, the winter kill of 07, and I'm not speaking like I'm an expert. I'm just speaking that, you know, I saw it with my own eyes as someone that lives in Arizona but hunts up there quite a bit. Man, it really wiped them out. And then we, we, we you know, from my perspective, it really got, you know, started getting better. And I started, you know, talking to some of the locals around there and it, you know, starting to get better. And then we had that winter last year. Although a, a bunch of the sportsmen petitioned to try and lower the deer tags, do you think that there's a chance that it really didn't have the die-off that you guys were expecting and so that there's actually probably a little bit, not surplus of deer, but surplus on top of what you kind of were hoping, meaning was it as bad as what you thought? It, this winter wasn't as bad as what I thought when I went out. Now, the, the really big deal is we had a 99% fawn kill off so you know i was thinking um in 07 08 uh, storms came in december so those those you know late november early december so those deer were still kind of you know coming out of the high country making their way to their wintering grounds and we just got dumped on so a lot of those 
deer got caught up high, um, and the buck-to-doe ratio was so high that the bucks, just because of competition, were absolutely exhausted. I mean, you'd see a buck on the side of the road standing next to a doe, um, and the doe would have the snow stacking up on her back, you know, because she has the fat reserves and the insulation, and that buck that had just been fighting and running and looking for does, he was just wet, just completely soaked. Um, so that that winter was a lot worse. Um, so when this winter, when this last winter came, it was about January. Um, so they kind of had a chance to move down to the wintering grounds, um, and they seemed to have done well. So now this this was my thought, um, and when I went out this year, I saw some you know decent bucks, some mature bucks, um, but. The next couple of years, when those fawns are supposed to, we're going to have about a two-year gap um, because those those that were carrying, um, you know, miscarried those fawns as well as the fawn crop that was already born. So there's going to be about two years in there where you're not going to see that age class of deer. Um, we went out, uh, me and Brad Phelps, uh, you know Brad Phelps, um, and we went yep. out classifying deer um in november this year and in three days i mean I, I can't remember the exact numbers but we saw probably 120 bucks um four that we would classify as mature you know 180 plus um hitting that mature mark and then we saw two two-point bucks um really yeah so that just kind of gives you perspective on yeah how how that age class is really going to Really in other words, you saw you you only saw four that were in the you know mature class, and yeah. then you saw a couple of small two points, and then the rest are you saying were probably like you know three year old type deer, just yeah, just little exactly. three points and stuff. Yeah, but I, what you're I'd saying say is they're from oh sorry, go ahead. What you're saying is like on the upper end they they were hammered, and on the lower end they were hammered. Yeah, yeah, and I mean we like, we saw some good bucks, um, but yeah, I, it just kind of seemed like that that. The age class I'm kind of talking about is anywhere from, yeah, three and a half, four and a half, anywhere from a 140 to a 175 buck. Um, you know, yep. we saw we saw a lot of those, which was promising, because um, I figured, you know, I didn't know if we'd lose those bucks because my initial thought was these bucks are the ones that really have to get out there and look for does. You know, those big mature bucks don't have to work probably quite as hard, but I thought those, you know, those younger bucks that were just running themselves ragged trying to find a doe would be the ones that bit it, um, but they seem just fine. And um, I don't know if any of the listeners have been keeping up on the winter we've had this year so far, but um, it's the same all across the West. I mean, we are dry, 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 um, and it's it's initially not as bad as I thought. Now we're kind of on the opposite end, you know, and we're, we're looking at about a 70% snowpack of our average um, annual snowfall this year. Um, so, it, and I, I think it's going to be good for the critters. I, I think that they're going to they're going to be healthy. I think we're going to get some late storms here in March and April, um, and kind of bring that moisture back. So, I'm, I think the I think the critters are going to fail fare pretty well this year. But you are saying that we're going to have a window, you know, say four years from now, there's going to be a window of bucks that's missing. Uh, a, a, a you know a year or two of bucks that's missing and and sometimes you don't really see that until you get to four or five years from now right so yep, those those 180 190 inch bucks or bucks that you know a lot of us are you know wanting to harvest and such or dreaming of you know harvesting those bucks over 200 there's definitely you got to watch those fawn crop years and what yep. you're saying is we lost a bunch of fawns last year. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, we lost 
about two years there. And the, and the best thing to do, I mean, for anybody that wants to get out there, you know, before a year before they think they're going to draw the tag, um, and Brad was the one who really introduced me to this this year, was he and Brad writes like a third grader, so that's hilarious to try and read his writing. <laughs> we, we go around and we hike and glass and um, classify everything. So you got fawns, does, two-point bucks, um, and then that middle buck range I was talking about, um, and then the mature deer. So that's just a great way um, because now looking back at those numbers, we kind of have a good idea of which units are holding those mature bucks um, and which units had a worse winter and things like that. For sure, yeah, that's all good stuff to to, um, to 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 think about and to monitor, and and um, hopefully I can get Brad on here as well and, yeah. and shed some light. Um, you know, growing up, what would you say? You know, just talking in general terms, if you're talking big bucks, um, you know, big buck hunting in in you know, growing up out of you know, sixty six, sixty seven, five fifty one, fifty four, and fifty five, like where would you say like unequivocally like that's the unit where you would go to find big bucks see i have a i have a really hard time deciding um it's it i hunt the the main units that i hunt are going to be 66 67 54 um i've hunted 55 hunted 551 um 551 was absolutely terrible this last year um i don't know we kind of had a weird weather pattern in the second and third seasons when i was out um but that unit I think it's going to take a little bit for, for those bucks to come back. Um, my dad and my brother had a 551 third season tag there um, last year, and my dad, I mean, he's you know he's been hunting his whole life, and they got us in basin. He's not going to shoot a 170 deer just to shoot one, you know. So he, he went through all nine days, um, ended up deciding to eat his tag, and my brother killed about a 175. Um, he's a mature buck, but he was a little four-point with crabby um, front forks. Um, but I, I would not recommend that unit. Now, 66 um, is pretty cool. There is, especially in the high country, you are so far from any road. Um, so I, actually this year was my first year hunting the high country in 66. I had an elk tag there. Um, so I did quite a bit of preseason scouting and spent about, I don't know, 15 days or so up there before I killed my bull, but it was pretty eye-opening for me just because a lot of the units I've been to um, are fairly road accessible, and my brother and I got into a spot where we had eight bulls, bachelor group, looked like they were in a stockable spot, um, and we checked the GPS, and we are five miles downhill from the truck, um, landlocked from the bottom, Um, so we're like, got to back out. Only two of us, 70 degrees outside, not a good idea. Um, so, but that is the cool part about 66 is you can be, I mean, you can get yourself back there. Same with 54, um, 54 is, uh, the West Elk wilderness area is right there. Um, so once you hit that West Elk wilderness, it is just miles and miles and miles of no man's land. Um, and same with 55, Louie kind of talked about that, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, 55 doesn't have many roads either. 551, um, is very road accessible. Um, and 67 is fairly road accessible too, um, but all the units, it depends on what season you want to hunt, um, but all five of those units have um, a pretty good amount of above timberline country, um, which is different than a lot of, you know, units in the state. When I looked at uh, 44, you know, there by Vail, they, those early season hunts are tough because they don't have any timberline, 
Um, so those units are kind of good when those bucks start to move down to the wintering grounds. But in the five units in the Gunnison Basin, there's a very good progression from, you know, anywhere from 13,000 feet to 11,000 feet all the way down on the valley floor. So it's about 8,000. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a very cool uh, range, you know, quickies, dark timber, all the way up to, um, above timberline. For sure. Don't you think, um, you know, 44, the reason that 44, well, not the reason, but one of the reasons why 44 has some great deer and always has had great deer is it's pretty thick and they don't get out in those opens where you, you can't really take advantage and, and glass them up like maybe you could in some of the high country of 54 or, or 66 where they're vulnerable that it just it's too thick and fit in 44 to really find them it's not that they're not there it's just you can't see them yep exactly and you, you know they're there but you you won't really know they're there when you got a tag in your pocket until they're on the wintering grounds and that i mean that's that's the name of the game for high country hunting you know if you're have a bow or a muzzleloader you want to be able to sit there for hours and pick apart a buck um pick apart a buck or a bull and really figure out what you want to do so that's that tough part with um 44 it's one of the easier premier units in the state to draw um just because that reason for those early season tags you know you're looking at if you want to draw four season you're looking at 20 years of drawing for a resident um but if you want to draw as a resident archery you're looking at one to two points yeah and it's it's like um people think well man i can draw a 44 tag with virtually no points well there's a reason yeah i mean exactly (laughs) typically when you're doing your research and you see stuff like that i mean you've got to understand that you know you know people are so educated these days it's not not too many things slip through the cracks i'm actually uh connor go hunt insider go hunt.com insider is a sponsor of this podcast i'm looking at the colorado draw odds right now and if we're talking about unit 44 with one point it's a hundred percent um success, uh, success of drawing uh, for the archery hunt. Yep. I mean, exactly. and, and you know, that's that's pretty unbelievable where, you know, you scroll down. Um, let's just go to third season here. Go to third season in 44, and you're at 21 points. So what a difference between the archery um, you know, it's crazy. Well, uh, you've grown up obviously mule deer hunting right in the heart of, you know, some of the best mule deer hunting in the United States. Um, can you look back at years when, you know, growing up when, you know, you would literally go probably with your dad just driving around and see, I mean, literally see 200 inch bucks almost every day. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the, it's kind of depressing when I think about it just because, you know, growing up here, um, took the took the mountains for granted in general. You know, I when I was looking at schools, I was you know looking to go to I don't know big school, CU, CSU, um, and I ended up getting scholarship offers for football from Kearney and Western. And it was like I I just didn't appreciate the Gunnison Valley for what it was. Um, kind of wanted to go to Kearney, and um, something happened. Grace of God didn't get there, um, and I st- stuck back at Western um, and. So I've literally been here my entire life. Western's the uh, university in town for you guys that are wondering. Western State Colorado University. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I took it for granted when I was a kid. It took me till I was in my college years to really appreciate it, you know, because I'd 
go out with my dad and we go shed hunting we go looking for bucks and it's like there wasn't any competition especially for shed hunting then um so it's like i didn't appreciate it for what it was now i'm putting in the effort now i'm seeing it's this big sport and um really hard to stay competitive there um and it was just life you know it was it was uh something that i i took for granted and i wish i had those years back just to be like i mean this is and like you said it was and i don't know if it'll ever be where it was um and i'm hoping you know we can get on the same page with the division of wildlife because it is i mean it should be we have the perfect um you know range from timberline to sagebrush to make this like the best deer hunting in the state um and it's kind of they kind of need to treat it that way they need to treat it you know as a as a trophy unit like the arizona strip or you know things like that um so yeah i mean i i wish and i look back at pictures you know pictures my dad has taken and he that the year um right before that bad winter um he went out and was just he passed a he passed a big buck big four point um was he was away for three four hours came back to go look at the buck um and he goes you know what i think i'm gonna put a stock in that buck um killed him and he went 205 gross clean typical um four point with eye guards and he passed that buck because of the quality of bucks he was seeing now you see that buck today no questions asked i mean you've been seeing 160s every single day no questions asked you're going to take that buck so that really speaks volumes to what kind of caliber bucks were here he passed the 205 typical to potentially <laughs> look for a bigger buck yeah and if i mean right now if he saw a 205 typical he'd probably oh, jump out of a moving truck to get it you know? oh yeah you know he would <laughs> uh yeah um let's talk a little bit uh have do you have any experience outside of the gunnison basin in in general units you know just talking uh deer units that other you know other that people might be considering or, or, you know, should consider or units that, you know, you've got buddies in or that you've heard good things about, just a general overview, um, you know, any other units out there that are jumping out at you that are, you know, good quality um, hunts that people should be looking at for mule deer. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I mean, kind of where I'm at in my life now is I'm looking to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to wait 20 years to draw a tag, you know, so I'm, I'm doing research to try and figure out the best unit for, you know, three, four, or five points where I can hunt, you know, consecutively and really gain that experience. Um, so that's those are kind of the units I'm looking at. Um, outside of the Gunnison Basin, I mean, almost directly outside, a little bit to the east, um, a little bit south, so a little bit to the east, we've got 68, 681, 682, um, and Jason Carter, uh, he's talked about hunting those quite a bit. It is... Um, not very far from Gunnison, but it's a lot different. Um, it's not that sagey country. It's really deserty, cactus, dry grass um, kind of terrain. Those bucks, from what I understand, are resident bucks kind of in that wintering country. So um, I was out there right before that shed closure took effect. I'm out there, um, and I'm, I'm looking at fall rubs spring rubs down in this low, low country, and I'm like, you know what, I think these bucks, I think they're here. Um, there's not much for timberline there, um, so I think those bucks just kind of live in that cedar desert kind of stuff, um, which we don't, you know, our, our wintering grounds is just sagebrush. You know, you're not 
still a little bit to the south. We've got ponderosa stands, um, but on most of these northern units, it's just sagebrush when you get into the wintering country. So 68, I've never hunted 68. Um, it really intrigues me, um, and mostly just because it's so close to me, and it's quite a bit easier to draw um, than the basin units themselves. Um, and I've also, a couple years ago, um, I went down to, um, I'm trying to look here, I think it was 751, 75, 77, um, somewhere in that area, somewhere in the Durango area, um, south of Gunnison, quite a ways south, it's about four hours south of Gunnison. Um, and it was, a, it was a really cool, really cool hunt, really cool country, um, but it's kind of the same as what you're talking about with Unit 44. It was difficult because it's so thick. Um, even in their wintering grounds, they've got oak brush that's so thick. You know, you see, you see a buck. I remember seeing a buck opening morning, and he took off into the oak brush, never saw him again. Um, that was probably the biggest buck I saw the whole trip. Wasn't ready, you know, wasn't ready to, you know, shoot him like a duck running away from me. Um, but that unit, I think it holds some really good bucks. Um, I've seen some really good bucks come out of there. Um, it's around the Southern Ute Indian Reservation down there, and there's a lot of, a lot of good bucks that come off the Southern Ute Indian Reservation. Um, and that one is a little bit easier to draw. Um, once again, there will be some timberline, not a whole lot. Um, and that wintering ground country is pretty difficult. You're not going to get a very long look at a buck if you do get one. Um, and I ended up killing a pretty decent buck um, on the last day. I was about to drive home, and I decided, me and my buddies decided to drive up this last road, and we're able to glass up a buck after I just said you can't glass up a buck um, and make <laughs> a move on him and, and get it done. So I, I think that unit's pretty cool. Um, I also this year hunted eastern Colorado for the first time. Um, I'm a mountain hunter, and I was like, you know what, I want to try my my skill set on a new platform, see what I can do out there. Um, that game is tough. Um, eastern Colorado. You probably everything. felt like a fish out of water oh, at yeah. first, did you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, it's, it's a different game just because, or first reason, because of the private. Um, I'm used to... You know, 90% of the lands that surround Gunnison are public. You know, either BLM, National Forest Service. Um, so it was weird for me to kind of have to start reaching out to connections and say, hey, can you try and get me on a place? Can I bring you elk meat? Can I, you know, pay a trespass fee, work on the ranch? Um, something like that to try and get access. So that was the first part that was really weird for me. Um, and I ended up getting access to some pretty good places there. Um, and the second part was, there's no rhyme or reason on where those bucks are. Um, you know, I'm used to watching that progression from timberline all the way down to wintering grounds, and this is just like wherever they can go, they're going to go. Um, and then we had full moon, 60 degrees. This is in December. It was a late season on. So December 1st or December 14th, um, terrible weather conditions. And it was funny because when I was leaving work, um, I took off all 14 days to go hunt, and I told my boss, I'm like, yeah, I'll be back in three days. No big deal. You know, I thought 170s be growing on trees out there. I'm going to whack a 190 second or third day, and I'm going to come prancing home. Um, and it was a difficult hunt, uh, with the, especially with those conditions. The wind was blowing about 40, 50 miles an hour every day. So what I had to resort to um, was I'd just go on walks. And I would walk during the middle of the day when those bucks had bed down, and I'd walk 10 miles, and every rise that I'd pop over, I would just see what I could see. Um, and, and, you know, it's, I'm used to finding sheds. If I'm out, if I'm out walking in wintering ground, I'm going to find a shed. So 
I'm there and uh, this guy that's a local there, I'm like, where are all the sheds? And he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I've, I've been walking nine miles a day and I've only found three sheds. And he goes, well, that's pretty good. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> man, you don't even know. So that's that's kind of the thing. Um, and there's there will just be these depressions, you know, these 70-foot depressions that it's not a drainage, it's not a, it's just a hole in the ground. And that's kind of where those bucks like to hide out. So it was. I mean, I did feel like fish out of water. Um, and on day nine, I ended up killing a, really nice buck he had six and a half inch bases um and about a nine inch inline coming off his back fork so i mean it it paid off but i was uh i was getting pretty frustrated by day nine just because i hadn't seen the caliber of bucks that i thought i was going to were the deer rutting they should have been rutting out there it was kind of post rut and i don't know if it was the weather okay. um a lot of the bucks i saw um there was there was just Groups of does, buck by himself. Groups of does, bucks by himself. And the buck I ended up killing, um, it's funny, the, the kid who helped me out is, um, he, so I, I met him, I was glassing a buck, and he came and talked to me, and he's like, hey, can I go out with you in the morning? Um, and when we went out, um, I had this 170 buck in my sights, 150 yards, and I'm like, I just can't do it. You know, even though it's day nine, I'd rather just eat this tag. Um, and then... We get in the truck, driving down the road a little bit, um, see a doe up on the hill, and he goes, I, I think we should go walk up there. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've been walking 10 miles a day. I don't want to walk up to look at no stinking doe. And he finally <laughs> convinces me. We walk up on top of the hill, um, and there was about three bucks with 20 does, um, and the, that buck that I killed uh, was in that group. Um, so I don't know. It seemed like they still had some rut activity going, um, but he was just uh, he's probably a eight and a half eight and a half year old deer i mean he was an old old bruiser um and ended up getting it done at 430 yards on day nine so i was i was on cloud 10 after uh yeah after you know kind of going through the ups and downs of i had these big was he a scoring buck no not at all he no. um he probably i'd say he'd probably go um uh, mid 170s to 180 um but really just mass all the way through his tines um, but he was just uh, just an old buck. You could tell he's past his prime. He's got velvet hanging off his back forks and um, bleach white antlers. I mean, it just looked like he was done. And the in the photos, he looks like a just like a mule, like a literal mule. His <laughs> body size was gigantic, and that and that, that was the kind of buck I was looking for. I was posting on my Instagram story the whole time, and I was like, you know, I'm I'm looking at a 180 class buck. That's what I want to get. Um, and then I change that and i was like okay that's that's not what i mean i want a mature deer i don't care if yeah. he's a 29 inch wide two point i want a mature deer um one who's been through it all and that's exactly what i got and it was just kind of kind of uh really good for me to feel that success after you know going through those ups and downs and uh yeah i was and being in completely new terrain um in an unknown unit it was it was very satisfying for me to get that done don't you think those bucks out there, I mean, you're talking about body size, um, you know, your mountain deer that have to, you know, they have to migrate so much. I think it takes a lot out of their body. Um, can you weigh in on, I'm looking at this picture of this buck. Yeah, he is wide antlered. Um, don't you think, I mean, they just don't have to put on the miles or the harshness up, you know, of, of you know, they could be at 13,000 feet in the summer and be all the way down on the winter ground, where here they're pretty much kind of staying probably in the same area out there on the 
out there on the east side, yeah, I would think. Absolutely. I mean, they not only do they have the protection of the private lands, you know, so um, a lot of times ranchers, they know what they have, um, and they're not going to let people go on and hunt so those bucks have security being on that piece of land, you know, and then there's winter wheat crop circles and corn crop circles, and, you know, so they, they are fat. And it's funny because you see there's whitetails and muleys out there, and you'll see, I mean, the whitetails compared to some of the whitetails I've seen in the east are I mean, they are monsters. They are crazy, and you'll, you when you watch them run, you can actually see the fat jiggle when they run. <laughs> you know, you know those bucks are healthy, and yeah, they're not putting in, they're not putting in the miles the other bucks are. And I'm sure, you know, during the rut, um, they're moving around and getting in some miles. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not as severe of terrain, um, and they are picking those. You know, after they knock down the corn, they're picking out those corn fields, um, and our bucks are eating sagebrush. Eating sagebrush, yeah, sagebrush, you know, yep, yeah. So it's just um, there's a lot more nutrition, obviously, in in those crops than there are in you know sagebrush and that that buck brush. For sure. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, is there an established shed season now, and and what's going on with that? As far as let the listeners know um, what has been established of dates and timelines and such. Okay, yeah, so um, this year they voted uh, everything west of I-25. Um, so the Gunnison Basin has historically for the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years, something like that, had a shed season. Um, it was March 15th, um, and then any time that we had a real bad winter, they'd push it back. Uh, you know, the uh, 07, 08, May 1st, this year, this past year is May 15th, um, just because of the bad winter. But they decided to do everything May 1, west of I-25, um, and it's it's kind of a terrible year to do it. I understand what they're trying to do. Shed hunting's getting getting too big, but um, you know, with just the lack of snow we have, people are getting cabin fever. They want to go out. They want to walk, um, and that's kind of the fight. Is CPW um, obviously uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife? They deal with the wildlife, so the only thing they can really control is what pertains to wildlife, which is shed antlers. Now those shed antlers are on BLM land and National Forest land. Um, so unless BLM and National Forest kind of follow suit um, and ban all recreation until May 1, which I don't think they will, um, then everybody can get out there, mountain bike, cross-country ski, hike with their dogs, um, do everything else. I mean, I, I could go out right now, and I wouldn't do that to myself because I can't walk by a shed, um, but <laughs> I could go out right now and walk around and just walk by the sheds and be completely legal, um, which is kind of where the disconnect is between the sportsmen um, and the Colorado Parks and Wildlife is we are, you know, we would, I, I wouldn't have an issue with it at all. If all recreation was banned, yes, this is, this is going to benefit our wildlife. There's too many people that are getting out there in February pushing these deer around before they drop their antlers when they're in a really critical time, you know. Um, so I understand uh, the concept behind it. I'm a rule follower. I'm going to follow the rules. Um, but it's it's just uh, it's kind of a tricky situation just because of all that recreation. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one for sure. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, elk and, you know, what is your true love? Are you a mule deer junkie or do you oh, also yeah. love elk? I, I love elk, but I'm a, I'm a mule deer junkie through and through. I, let's, yeah, talk, I, let's, let's talk a little bit of elk. Um, through the eyes of a mule deer junkie and talk a little bit about the Gunnison Basin units uh, for elk 
Uh, and then we can also branch out and talk about some of the other um, popular units in Colorado. Okay. Um, so this past year, I hunted 66. That's what I was talking about. Um, and, yeah, my first time hunting high country in 66. Um, my brother had a tag as well, so that was pretty fun. My, my brother um, guides for Jonah's Alaskan Outfitters in Alaska, um, and he's actually headed down. Jonah Stewart? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, what yeah. a that's small it. world. I know, yeah, that's who he's, he's guided for him for the last three years or something, doing um, doll sheep and brown bear hunts. Um, and then he's headed down to New Zealand in probably three or four days um, to guide for Lake Hawea Outfitters down there. So it was really cool for me to be able to spend time with him. You know, he's definitely a, he's my older brother. He's a wealth of knowledge, and he's a freaking mountain goat, man. He walks me into the ground every time. I thought, I'm like, I, you know, thought I was some NCAA athlete, and my brother, who's <laughs> shorter than me and weighs less than me, just walks me into the ground. But, um, yeah, really cool for him to come to 66 with me. Um, saw some decent bulls. Um, you know, it's Colorado historically um, and still currently is not one of the premier states for elk. Yeah, there's there's big elk in almost every unit that surround the Gunny Basin, um, but you're not going to find, you know, three bulls over 350 inches. You may find one that's 340, um, and so that 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 was kind of our experience in '66. The biggest bull that we probably saw was. 315, 320, um, tried to tried to work him in, couldn't work him in, um, and I ended up killing a pretty decent five-point um, solo when my, my brother had to go guide for somebody in Gunnison. Um, so he ended up, he was only able to hunt a couple days of that first week. Um, and like I said, it was super hot, probably 70 degrees. Um, but it was a it was a cool unit. It was. I did not see one single person the entire time, besides my brother, and that's that's kind of my goal. Um, you know, obviously my goal is to kill an elk, but I don't want to be bumping elbows with people on public land. Um, so that was. Uh, I really liked seeing that. That I spent, you know, a couple weeks up there in a tent, and I wasn't seeing anybody. And it's just because not many people are willing to kind of drop into those areas where it's going to be it's going to be a little hellacious to get out of there. Um, so 66, I think that's definitely definitely a good option. Um, takes about three years to draw as a resident. Um, I assume probably about five as a non-resident. Um, I'm looking at it right now. It's got yeah, six points as a non-resident. Okay, yep. Um, 67 is the unit to the east of 66, um, and it's, it's a pretty cool unit. Um, that's where my grandpa used to run his outfitting company was in 67, um, but same thing, you're kind of going to encounter the same things as 66. Yeah, it's a little more road accessible, uh, but you're not really going to find those huge caliber bulls that you're looking for, um, but I'm sure there's some in there. Um, same with 54, north of Gunnison, West Elk Wilderness. Uh, you know, I find sheds sometimes on the wintering grounds that are like, whoa, that's a big bull. Never see them alive. Um, so there, there are those caliber bulls, and 54, it is very easy to draw. Um, I used to get it second choice archery um, when I put in for it. Now I think it just takes zero points. You can't put in for it as second choice from what I remember. Um, but there are some good bulls there, but again, you are going to work for it. Um, it's not not one of those hunts where you're going to, you know, walk up two miles a day. You're going to, you are going to put in your time and you're going to eat mountain house and be cold and freezing and exhausted for, you know, a week before you get one down. Um, but I definitely like 54. Um, that's actually where I killed my biggest bull a couple years ago. Um, 
solo archery, um, and then 551. Let, 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 me, let me ask you one question real okay. fast. Let me yeah. bounce back to something you just said that the light went off. Explain to me, and I've been, I, every year I have to refresh my brain, but you can apply for, let's say you apply for 61 or 76 or whatever as your first choice, and you, mm -hmm. and you apply for a unit as your second choice. It doesn't affect your bonus points, and that's something from Arizona It's hard for me to understand because they take your first two choices. But you also said something that since it's 100% draw with zero points, it won't work for your second choice. Did I, what did I miss there? So the, the, it's, it's just because they kind of lessen the elk tags there. Um, so a couple years ago, you could, so how the system works is you, let's say I've got, so right now I've got four or five points for elk in Colorado. So I am trying to build up those points. So I'll put in for 61, 76 or something, you know, first choice. Um, and then my second choice doesn't take away from the points at all. So it is just, um, it's not an over-the-counter archery unit, so there's a lot of over-the-counter archery units that surround the Gunnison Basin, um, but the Gunnison Basin for archery is draw only. Um, so you have to draw the tag, but as a second-choice tag, it's not taking away from any of your points. Um, you're still gaining that point, and you're just able to pull that tag. Um, so 54, and I think they've moved away from that. I don't know if you can pull that up on your says. It says as for non-residents, it says it's 100% draw um, with zero points. So would that be eligible for your second season? Let me look at the resident here. Um, so would that, uh, if, if it's 100%, can you put it in as a second choice and draw it as a non-resident? Um, I, I probably, I mean, you could, you could try, and I could, I could pull up. Um, the, okay, uh, here, CPW. as a resident, as a resident, it's 100%. So in other words, if I put in for 54 as my second choice archery elk and it's 100% draw, I would draw it as my second choice and it wouldn't affect my first choice yep. for one of the better units, right? Exactly. Okay, I just wanted to make sure that, that I wasn't missing something there, um, in, in other words, you can put in for anything as your second choice and have a chance to draw it, and it doesn't affect your first choice. And yeah, that goes for deer and for elk, right? Yeah, yeah but you have to look for the units, obviously. They're not going to give out second-choice tags. Um, they're not going to give out second-choice tags in those good units. Um, so Great the ones units, that are yeah. like those lesser units, those are the ones you kind of have to look for. And um, anybody who's interested, you can pull up the deer and elk statistics page on Colorado Parks and Wildlife website and kind of look at it, and it'll show, it'll say, you know, this is a resident, 100% zero, um, second choice, 10% of people draw, or 20% of people draw, or however it may be, but you can kind of look that right. up um, and see which unit you want to go into. And it's funny you say that about you not knowing Colorado's system, because this is the first year I started putting for, in for other states. And I'm looking at Arizona and Utah and stuff like that, and everything's so different. I mean, uh, you get used to, you know, your own state, yeah. and you start branching out, and it's like every system is different. For sure. I mean, it's it's one of those things that you got, you know, but once you do it a year or two, then you're like, okay, now I understand the system. Um, you were about to say 551, and, and then after you talk about that, let's um, dive into some of those you know, 76s, 61s, 201s, 10s, and talk about anything you know about those. Okay. Um, yeah, so 551, um, it is a 
fairly decent unit. Um, it is very road accessible, um, and I'd still say you're going to, I mean, you're not just going to go down there and kill a bull, you know, walk out of your truck and kill a bull. Um, if, if it were up to me, I would look at other options for units. I live in 551 currently, um, and it, it, it can be fairly decent, but once again, it's kind of like those most of the units in Colorado where you're, you could luck into a nice six-point bull, but uh, probably the average that's getting pulled out of there is a, you know, a second-year branch antler bull, um, first year, something like that. Um, so I, I wouldn't recommend that um, for other people. Um, I would I would try and look at some of those units that um, are a little less road accessible um, and a little you know better chance of drawing and w- a hunt that you can do you know year in and year out. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, um, I'm looking on your Instagram here on your personal Instagram. I know you're a Kuyu guy. You wear a bunch of yeah. Kuyu. You like it? Oh yeah, I I love it. And as my brother's the one that got me started. It was funny because I, you know, once again, it was hunting was just life for me. It wasn't. I I used my dad's hand-me-down Walmart camo pants, crappy packs, crappy boots. Um, so when I started, you know, actually making money and looking into this stuff, I when I got my Kuyu and some nice boots and stuff, I'm like, whoa, this is what I've big been missing difference. out on. Yeah, there's a there's a big difference. Um, and it, yeah, my Kuyu was held up really well um for all my hunts this year um really yeah i bought my uh i bought a one of the kuyu down sleeping bags before i went to unit 66 and that was awesome that was a lifesaver for sure yeah which one did you go with i have the 30 degree bag which I, which degree did you i think i did the, what how does it work it's zero is it zero fifteen and 30 or zero yeah i think it's 30? zero fifteen and 30 yeah i went with the i went with the 15 yeah they're they're great bags for sure. Okay, um, what do you know about uh, say seventy six, sixty one? You know some of those units. Um, so probably the unit I've been in the most is seventy six, um, just because it's so close, um, and I do like seventy six a lot. So it's it's it backs up to sixty six for those of you that don't know. Um, sixty six and seventy six are divided by the Continental Divide, um, and once you drop into sixty six, like I said, no roads. 76 is fairly road accessible, so you're still going to have to put in a lot of work. Um, my dad had an early rifle tag there last fall, um, and my buddies have drawn some archery tags there. Um, my buddy Sage Hool, he killed a 315-inch um, bull there this year, opening day. Um, he's super tickled with that one, um, and my dad had the opportunity to shoot some shoot some bulls of that class, but once again, he's, you know, he's been around the ring. He's, he's not just going to shoot one to shoot one. You know, he's really looking for that next caliber. And um, last day, he was able, him and my brother, I had to head back to work, but uh, him and my brother were able to get on a bull that was about 340 right at his last light um, and couldn't quite seal the deal on him. So I know there are good bulls there. Um, also, lots of good moose. Um, I've never seen more moose in my life than I did in 76 that year um, and some pretty pretty good bulls. Um, so I, I, I do like 76. a pretty cool story about uh, I was in 76 once and there was um, a, some moose down at this lake and I decided to see how close. There were just cows and calves and I decided to see how close I could get to them. And the, the, the calves were kind of farting around in this um, 
um, female moose, the cow moose was sticking her head down, eating stuff off the bottom like the moths or something. <laughs> she'd stick her whole head down, and every time she would, I'd like run up, and then I'd stop, and she'd look around, and then she'd dunk her head back in, and I'd run up, and I ended up getting like literally like 15 or 20 yards from her, <laughs> and the cows are just kind of looking at me. <laughs> yeah, and then she looked around, and I'm thinking, this isn't very smart, actually. I just snuck up on this sucker, and she's going to think I'm going to, you know, want to bother her calves. And, uh, but sorry to interrupt. But no, that was, I never yeah. forget that. Because yeah, every time I, mean, I would come up, you know, the water would be dripping off her head, and she'd look around, and then she'd dunk back in, and I'd, I'd go scampering up there again. It was pretty fun. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, you, you're crazy. I don't know if I'd do that. We were, um, one day we were in there with my dad, and we were, walking around before light, and I started hearing this, uh, uh, branches breaking, coming towards us, and we couldn't go out and see anything yet, but I saw this big black shadow, and it finally got light enough about 10 minutes later, and we were probably 20 yards from this bull that was pushing, uh, you know, two yearling cows, and it was a big bull, and it was pretty intimidating to be that close to an animal like that, you know, especially when you can't really see them, you can hear them, but, uh, yep. yeah, that was, that was a fun experience, but yeah, um, 76 is very cool. I can tell you that's personally where I'm saving my points for. Um, that kind of leads into 61 that you talked about. Originally, I really wanted to hunt 61 archery. Um, lots of great bulls there. Um, and my buddy Tony Ball, his cousin, got a uh, 61 early rifle tag the same year as my dad did, uh, the 76 tag, and he killed a 335, 340 bull opening day. Um, so definitely a great unit. Uh, the point creep is so bad, though, that I looked at it, oh. and I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to be able to draw this, especially um, I'm turning 25 here in a couple of days, and I want to hunt. I I have the body yeah. to, you know, really put myself through some hell, um, and I, I want to be able to hunt. So I'm not going to wait, you know, 15 more years to draw a 61 archery tag with the creep. Um, there, yeah, there's lots of good bulls there, but it's just personally not worth it to me. If you've got the points, absolutely go for it. Um, there, I thought I was going to catch 61. I have 19 points and like a year or two ago, I thought I'm going to catch it and shoot. Now it's just, it's just racing away from me. That's that's for archery. Yeah. And you Um, know, I, as a non-resident, I feel like, um, you know, with the new change in in the Colorado regs where you're not going to have to float the money and you can just, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's going to c- cause creep even more. So I'm probably going to have to ship my, ship, shift my focus away from 61 and look at 76 or look at some of these other units. Um, yeah. But it's, you know, it's just like, dang it, I almost, I thought I was going to catch it. And, I know, um, and it, it's crazy the way that worked out because, I mean, that's, that I think they probably have more of those high caliber bulls than seventy six, um, but yeah, it's just for somebody that's got to build points, it's just not even worth it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you kind of tell me about, the story. Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead. Um, I was talking about the um, unit two and two hundred one. So a cool thing about that is they do the hybrid draw um, on those tags. And I don't know if you're familiar with the hybrid draw, but once you have five points um they give a certain percentage of the amount of tags randomly to anybody above five points um so unit two 201 um are really good units and it's probably going to take you know the same thing as 61 probably 20 years to draw um an archery tag but if you have five points plus um put in for that hybrid draw explain 
explain the hybrid draw because I haven't talked about it with any of the other guys. I remember talking about it last year, but it's, I'm kind of fuzzy on the details. Yeah, so you can you can look it up and uh, call it a big game brochure. Um, but there's certain certain units, and they are the premier units in the state for um, deer, elk, antelope, and any time that you're above five points, even if it takes 20 years to draw, if you are above five points, you have a chance to draw that tag. Um, so if you look at some of the stat pages, it'll be like unit two. Um, it'll say you know 10 people drew with 20 points, or you know. Eight drew with 20 points, two drew with 19, and then one drew with six. So it doesn't really add up when you look at it like that, but when you know about the hybrid draw, then you can you can see that that person just got lucky and that he was in the same pool as the guys who had 17, 16, 15 points. He was in the same exact pool, had the same exact chance as those guys. That's what I need to do. That yeah. Thanks for the tip on that. Yeah. That's what I need to welcome. do. Yeah, that's, what I'm, yeah. That's, that's definitely what... What I'm going to do as well, especially for uh, deer and antelope. That's awesome. Um, all right, I know. Um, I know we're clicking along here pretty good. I want to take just a second to thank the sponsors of the podcast. I've talked about GoHunt.com Insider, talking about the draw odds, and I want to encourage the listeners if you're not a GoHunt Insider member to use the J Scott promo code when you sign up. You're going to get a fifty dollar GoHunt Gear Shop gift card. And uh, it, it does have the best draw odds and statistics out there for all the Western states. Um, use the J. Scott promo code. I also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. Go to Kuyu, that's K-U-I-U dot com, and find out about the gear that Connor and I are talking about. Kuyu makes the best ultralight hunting gear on the market today. Uh, Phonescope.com, use the J. Scott 16 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount there. Uh, PhoneScope makes the best digiscoping adapters t- to be able to adapt any phone to any optic. Uh, and then the Outdoorsman's, the Optics Authority, Cody Nelson and his crew there in Arizona, use the J. Scott promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount there at Outdoorsman's.com or call them at 1-800-291-8065. Connor, I want to, uh, we've covered a lot of ground today. I wanted to ask you about Harold. Okay. Um, so I see it on your Instagram, and he looks like a giant buck. What's it, the story on that, that bruiser? So, um, so when I was, I was probably a sophomore in college, um, and I'm there at my parents' house, and this is, I mean, I'm still into it, but this is when I was really getting into, like, wildlife photography. I had my good camera, you know, and I'd go out with my buddies, and we'd go, you know, try and shoot them with a the camera when, when hunting season wasn't going on. So I'm at my parents' house, and I forget I was, you know, having dinner or something like that, um, and I saw this buck, and he was, you know, a 154 point with a kicker coming off the side, and my dad's like, don't you dare scare that deer, and I'm like, Dad, i got to get a picture, and he's like, he's like, don't do it, and he's all pissed off at me. I take my camera, I go up there, and I get some cool pictures of this buck, um, and I didn't know that it was going to turn into what it did. Um, so the next year um, at my parents' house, um, I, my dad sent me a photo of this nice buck in our yard, and I go, I go, that's him. And he goes, no, it's not. That's not him. And I go, yes, it is. Look at his kickers coming off the same spot. He's gained some mass. He's gained some time length. Um, and he still wouldn't believe me. Um, and I think it was November, um, so those sheds had been laying out, you know, for seven months or so. And I, uh, I went and I found those sheds. Um, so he went about 182, 
with the kicker. Um, and once again, thought it was going to stop there. Um, next year, he comes back, and he is an absolute giant. Um, <clears throat> just a beautiful 30-inch wide, typical. Um, and in that photo, he's he's very white-horned, um, and he's got these probably four or five-inch kickers coming off each side. Um, and I got pictures of him again that year. Um, and I went out, and I started looking once March 15th rolled around. Um, and it was funny because my it was on um, it was on private land on my parents' private land. Um, and my dad knew that I had this this connection with this buck. Like this was my buck, you know. And he it's at his house, but so he thinks it's his buck. Um, but he didn't tell me. Him and my brother <laughs> went out looking for those sheds, um, and they didn't find them. And I was pissed. I mean, I came to the house and I'm like, "Are you guys serious? Like you purposely left me in the dust to go find those sheds?" <laughs> so I'm all mad. I uh, put on my pack. I start walking. I'm, like, looking at their boot tracks, and I'm like, what a bunch of assholes. I can't believe they did this to me. <laughs> um, right under their boot tracks, I see three inches of a main beam coming out of the snow. And actually, no, this is kind of the funny part. So I, I raised a shed dog. Um, so I actually had my brother's dog, my shed dog, and then my lazy 11 yellow lab. Um, but I turned around initially, and I see him. I see my brother's dog yanking something out of the sagebrush, and he he will not find an antler. Um, well, that's what I thought. I, he's he's kind of one of these lazy dogs. Um, and I turn around, and he's pulling one of Harold's sides out of the sagebrush, and I'm like, holy <laughs> crap. Um, and the only reason he pulled it out was because he still has blood and velvet on the tines. So that, that fat ass, and side note here, uh, my brother's dog, Boone. So my brother, when he was guiding in Alaska, right before he started the guide season, um, he went up, uh, been shooting a bow for two months, um, went up there, killed a Pope and Young caribou, um, got it all season, had it shipped back, and he couldn't save the velvet. So the the antlers are just, you know, that just maroon, just full of blood. Yeah. So he gets yeah. them kind of stinky. They were wrapped in plastic, <clears throat> put it on top of the of cab of the pickup. So very high. We go inside. We're having dinner. Um, we go outside, and we see Boone munching on something. And... We run out there, and Boone had jumped up on top of the hood of the truck, got on top of the cab, pulled down those caribou <laughs> antlers, and eaten every single point off before I got score. <laughs> so, so Boone, Boone has uh, he has a connection with those velvet antlers. So yeah, back to the story. He's pulling out this bloody antler, um, and I turn around and I look, and the other side's laying there. There's about three or four inches coming out of the snow, right under their boot tracks. You listeners, that's why you don't try and screw your family over. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I, and I, I'm still mad at myself because I was so excited that I just went and yanked that thing out of the snow. And looking back, <clears throat> that had been such a cool ATL photo just because the it was had been really cold, so the crystals on top of the snow were really gleaming in the sunshine, and the points were coming out, and I just yanked it out of the snow. You know, I was so excited. Um, but ended up scoring him. He went 210 um, that year, and I was like, okay, that's that's got to be it. You know, he's gonna get he's gonna get whacked. Um, and then last winter, um, at my parents' house, my dad calls me and he goes, he's back. And I I uh, was like, okay. I told my girlfriend her name is Petra. I said, Petra, grab my camera, go to the house. I'll meet you up there after work. So I run up there, um, and he's you know he he's not scared of anything right now he's around the house and i'm taking photos of him and i'm like oh my gosh i mean he's i don't know what that buck scores and you can probably look at the pictures and i think 
I think he's probably similar um, to what he was when he was at 210. I think he was a little bigger. He kind of sprouted some extras, but um, gained some mass and then lost a little bit on his forks, the depth of his forks. Um, but got some great pictures of him, um, and then he disappeared. One day he just disappeared. I have no idea where he went. Um, this year he never came back, um, so I don't know. The, the saga has ended, um, but it was, it was really a pleasure watching him for four years. Um, just a really cool buck, and the, the reason why he's um, named Harold um, is because uh, my grandpa, who's the outfitter, uh, he passed away last September, um, so it was um, kind of, you know, I, I felt like that buck coming back was my grandpa, my grandpa Harold um, coming back, um, so that was that was the reason why he was named That's Harold. Cool. Yeah, um, and uh, another, another funny story is that, so that year he was the biggest, the last year that I saw him, when I told my girlfriend to grab the camera, um, I got back to the house that night, she falls asleep, she wakes up for work at like 5 o'clock in the morning, she falls asleep. I'm up there putting the photos on my computer, and I see this photo, and I go, oh, my gosh. And I go, Petra, I wake her up, and I'm like, I, this is the best wildlife photo I've ever taken in my entire life. Look at this. She rolls over. She looks at it, and she goes, yeah, I took that. And then she just rolls over <laughs> and goes back to bed. And I went, no wonder I don't remember taking that photo. <laughs> First is your bubble. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah, so now she says that's her buck and not mine. <laughs> oh my goodness that is awesome yeah that but, is cool what a neat story that's yeah that's a phenomenal story yeah, well and so if anybody if anybody uh takes a look at my instagram and notices hey i've got those sheds sitting in my pile uh let me know because i'll probably pay way too much money to get those <laughs> probably give you the farm for those sheds. yeah exactly yeah, that's, <laughs> that's awesome well yeah I want to thank you, Connor, for coming on and sharing so much with us. And um, I look forward to having you on again. And and um, maybe we can get out and do some fishing. I know you love fly fishing as well. And and um, so, yeah, I look forward to uh, meeting you. I'll have to run down to Gunnison and uh, see you and see Brad and Steve and all the rest of the guys. Yep. And, um, yeah, it's, it's great connecting with you. And I want to encourage uh, everyone to go by um, – you know, go by and definitely check out uh, the uh, Trader's Rendezvous there on the north side of when you're coming into Gunnison from the west. It'd be on your left-hand side um, on Tamichi Avenue there. And uh, definitely follow uh, Connor's uh, personal uh, Instagram, Connor D. Clark. Uh, and then Colorado Antlers um, is, is your website, Colorado coloradoantlers.com. I'll link it up in the uh, show notes of this podcast. Um, we've got a lot more to talk about, so I want to have you on again uh, here one of these days, and we'll chat some more. Uh, but until then, buddy, God bless you, and thanks for uh, sharing with us. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Jay. I'm looking forward to getting together with you and Bradley and going fishing. Sounds good, buddy. All right. Well, take care, okay? All right. Sounds good, Jay. All right. Bye. Bye.